We really appreciate everyone being here this evening. Uh, on the way to the building tonight, I thought, you know, there are a lot of people do a lot of things on Sunday evening. You pass by the ballpark and people are out playing ball or practicing and uh, pass by the park and people may be out walking or doing this and that, but uh, chosen to be here and think chosen the better part. Gather together with God's people to worship and uh, our, our hope, our prayer is that our time together will be, will be helpful, beneficial, uplifting, and just what we need to help us and equip us for the coming week. What, what is the Bible all about? Well, what, what, what is the Bible about? If you were to go to the summit over here and just randomly stop people and ask that question, I'm not sure what kind of answers you might get. Well, the Bible is an old religious book. It tells you about God. It, it, it tells you about Jesus and might get an answer like that. Some might say, well, it's, it's an old book. It contains a lot of stories that tell good moral lessons, sort of like Aesop's fables or something in, you know, something kind of like that. And you might get other answers as well. You, some people might get a little upset at you, uh, bringing up the Bible and asking you what, they, what you what they think about it. What is the Bible about? Well, it's not a random collection of, of stories. Now, it has stories in it that teach good lessons. That's not really what it's about. It does tell us about God. It tells us about Jesus, but it does more than just tell us about them. It's the story of how God redeems a fallen human race. And uh, it tells us how God has worked through human history, working through historical figures, actual living men and women, to bring about a Savior into the world. That Savior, of course, is Christ. He comes into the world, he's sort of at the center of the story, goes to the cross and atones for our sins, and we receive that. We enjoy the benefit, receive the benefit of, of that work. And so there's a thread that runs from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. There's, there's a theme that runs from the beginning to the end. It's the theme of salvation and, and redemption that God brings about in Christ. We've just been doing some Bible study on, on, on Sunday nights over the last few weeks. We're looking at that very idea, how there's this idea, this theme, this, this uh, thread that runs all through the Bible as we think about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the very beginning we said that there, there's a sort of a discontinuity between them, that the old law, the law associated with the old covenant, uh, as has come to an end. And so we're not obligated to keep the rituals and the ceremonies and the law that was contained in that law of Moses. But the word, the Bible, the Old Testament is the Word of God and it teaches the truth. It teaches truth of uh, many different ideas, many different subjects. But one truth it teaches is that God is our Savior and God is working to bring about salvation through His Christ. So we've looked at some of the Old Testament passages that connect with Christ. We looked at Isaiah 53, for example, a passage that's quoted many times, several times in the New Testament. We looked at Psalm 110, another passage that's quoted many times in the New Testament. And tonight we're going to look at the second Psalm. And so let's turn to the second Psalm, an extremely important passage in, in the Old Testament, quoted or alluded to Num numerous times, I think at least 10 times in, in the New Testament. It's quoted in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, and then again in Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. 
It's quoted a couple of times in the book of Hebrews as well, chapter 1 and verse 5 and chapter 5 and verse 5. It's quoted multiple times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2 and verse 27, chapter 12 and verse 5, chapter 19 and verse 15. I think it's alluded to other times, if not an outright quotation, an allusion to the content of the second psalm, and we'll take a look at some of those as we go through. A couple of interesting things about the second psalm. First of all, it's attributed to David in the New Testament. And so if you look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, as it's introduced, David is, is, is uh, said to be the author, but you don't see that in the second psalm. Uh, most of the time, David's name, if David is the author, at least uh, most of the time that we know of, his name is associated with it in that introductory material before the first verse. But that's not the case here, but it is attributed to him in the New Testament. The second psalm consists of four stanzas, and there are different speakers in the psalm. God speaks, the nations speak, and the psalmist himself speaks. And so we'll note that as, as we go through. It contains at least one passage that is very well known to us, I think, and, and we'll, we'll take note of that as well. The message of the psalm can be stated like this. The psalmist or David calls upon those who are on the earth to acknowledge and yield to the authority of the Lord and His King. And so the psalmist, David, calls upon the nations of the earth to recognize, to acknowledge the authority of the Lord and His anointed one, His, His King, the Messiah, because He will completely crush all rebellion, but grant refuge to those who turn to Him. And so it's a common idea, isn't it, as you, as you do Bible study? And we want to be good Bible students. That's, that's what I would like for us to be, good Bible students. And that's what we're trying to, to achieve in our studies, just a study of the Bible, learning to handle or write the word of truth. And so um, that's the message of the psalm. The psalmist calls on the nations, those are on the earth, to acknowledge the authority of the Lord and His anointed. The anointed is going to completely crush those who oppose Him, but will give refuge to those who turn to Him. There are four stanzas, at least that's the way I'm going to divide it up. Your Bible might divide it up differently, but I'm going to, I'm going to divide it up into four stanzas. Let's just read through them. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. And so here the nations are speaking. Now, they don't speak throughout that first stanza. Their words are contained in verse 3. The psalmist is wondering, why, why do they do the things they do? Why are they in an uproar? Why are they raging against the Lord and His anointed? What they say is, let's, let's break free of the bonds that God has, has, a place, has placed on us. The nations in verse 1 are, are the Gentiles. That's the typical word for Gentile in the Old Testament. It's not used exclusively of the Gentiles, but in a passage like this, it would refer to the Gentiles. And then the peoples, that's the typical word for Israel. And so you can see that both the pagan nations, the Gentile nations, and the people and Israel, they're both uh, 
complaining about the Lord and His anointed and the restrictions that the law of God places on them. They want to burst free from those things and live an unrestrained life, a life unrestrained by the law of God. The word anointed you see there in verse 2 is the word for Messiah or the word for Christ. That makes the connection with Christ easy for us, doesn't it? So you see that word anointed, you realize it's the word Messiah or the word Christ, and our thoughts immediately go to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of, of the passage. There are three types of people in the Old Testament that were anointed. Priests were anointed. You can read that in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 7. Prophets were sometimes anointed. And so Elisha is anointed. 1 Kings 19 verses 15 and 16. But most of all, kings were anointed. And if we were to ask, you know, what type of people were anointed in the Old Testament, kings would be the first probably to come to mind. And that's the idea here. The, the anointed one, the Son of God in this passage, is, is the king. And so he's been anointed to be, to be king. The nations are devising uh, they're making their plans. They're taking counsel together. They're taking their stand against the Lord and against His anointed one and against His Messiah. In fact, they're in an uproar, you know. Why, why are the nations in an uproar? Why do the nations rage? And so the picture is the, the nations are just excited. They're in a turmoil. They're in a rage. They're in an uproar. They're, they're about to riot, it seems like, against the Lord and against His representative who's administering His rule in, in the earth. Again, they think that the rule of God, His righteousness, His holiness, is like being bound by a chain. We're in fetters to this law of God. It's restraining us. It's, it's keeping us from doing the things that we want to do. Now, that's not just an ancient attitude, is it? <laughs> that's a modern attitude as well. People today think going by the Bible is too restrictive. Going to the law of God as it's given to us in scriptures, it's too restraining, it's too confining. We need to break free of that and we can live a fulfilling life and a satisfying life. And so the nations today are doing the very same thing that the nations were doing uh, of old. Let's look at the second stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, and now God speaks. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You've got an interesting passage and in, uh, statement in this passage. Uh, the Lord is uh, scoffing at them. His, his anger is aroused. But I think this is one of the few passages in the Bible where we find God laughing. We don't read about God laughing very often, do we? But, but we find it here in verse 1. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Well, what's the idea there? Well, he scoffs at their puny efforts to break free of his authority. They want to break free. They want to be independent. They want to do what they want to do. And so they go about, they're plotting, they're devising how they can accomplish that. And the Lord sees that and, oh, <laughs> can, you can you believe what they're trying? He laughs at them in derision. He's scoffing at their puny, weak efforts to break free of his authority. It sort of reminds me of Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. Remember, the people are, 
are uniting and they're building this tower into heaven. They're going to make a name for themselves and so forth. And the, the tower is being built and it's going to reach up into heaven. And then verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And so here's their efforts, the, the greatest efforts, combined efforts that they can, you know, that they can muster. And the Lord still has to look down, come down and, and see what it's all about. That's how great He is. And so in Psalm 2, He's laughing. He sees their weak, puny efforts uh, to break free of His authority. And, and He's laughing, laughing at them. Their efforts are, are a joke. Their arrogance quickly turns to fear. In verse 5, He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. And so their, their efforts quickly turn to fear when God speaks. God says, as for me, and that's just a, a way of expressing the emphatic nature of the statement. But as for me, I'll tell you what I have done. I've set my king, I've installed my king upon Zion. Now we talked about Zion a little bit this morning in, in our Bible study. It's the stronghold. It's, it's the fortress. It's the place of security. It's the place where God dwells. It's the place where salvation goes forth from. And so that's where God's king is. He's there, he's established, cannot be moved, cannot be shaken, and he's going to exercise God's rule no matter what the efforts of these people put forth. And so the nations are fighting against the rule of God. It's vain to do that. It's silly to do that. And all the efforts of man to break free of the restraints of God, are they're, they're laughable. God will have the final say. And uh, quicker people learn that, the better. Well, then let's look at the third stanza, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And so, and so here the, the king is speaking. Uh, just very briefly, he's really introducing what the Lord has told him. But I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so those are familiar words to us, aren't they? You're, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. We'll see how they're used in the New Testament in just a moment. As for me, or ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. And so he says to the king, of course fulfilled in Christ, I will give you rule and authority over the nations. And you will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. My understanding is in the ancient world, if a person had an enemy or a competitor or somebody that he kind of wanted to, to get rid of, get out of his life, take an earthen pot, a clay pot, write his name on it, and then take a rod and just smash it. <laughs> and uh, that would inflict harm on the person, on the enemy or the competitor. And so maybe that's the idea here. You will break them like a clay pot with a rod of iron. And so it just speaks to the, um, you know, the, again, the authority and the power and the rule of God against those who oppose Him. In the final analysis, the point is, in the final analysis, if those oppose God and oppose His people, they're going to be smashed. And then the fourth stanza says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, 
um, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son, that He may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those, are all who take refuge in Him. And so notice the direction that's given, that's given here. Take warning, worship the Lord, rejoice, do homage to the Son, or some translations may say, kiss the Son, but that's the idea, to do homage to the Son. In other words, recognize His authority, recognize that He's the anointed of God. Pay your respect to Him, serve the Lord with fear. Instead of fighting against God and His King, acknowledge His authority and obey the King. That's in your best interest. And so he appeals to them in, in, verse, in verse 10, show discernment, take warning. And so this is to your benefit, this would be to your advantage to stop your plotting, to stop your devising, stop your plans to throw off God's authority and yield to it and serve Him. That's the best, best decision you can make. All right, so let's take that information and let's see how the passage is used in the New Testament. Said a moment ago, this is a very important psalm when it comes to New Testament study. So let's just take a look at, at how it's used. Turn to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Peter quotes, he's in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Remember, he's in the synagogue, so he's going to make you know, a, a use of, of the Scriptures. So he's going to quote the Scripture. They, they know the Scriptures. The Jews know the Scriptures. They know this psalm. And so he's going to use Scripture and try to establish his point. So in Acts chapter uh, 13, again, Paul in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia says in verse 32, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. And just prior to that, if you look at verse 30, he refers to the resurrection of the dead. Here, we made known to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You're my son, today I've begotten you. And so, you might ask, well, what, how does that apply to Christ? You're my son, today have I, I've begotten you. Well, Peter applies that to the resurrection. The resurrection shows that Jesus is God's begotten son. This day I have begotten you. We also, I think, see an allusion to it in a couple of other passages. Remember when Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, there's a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son. And so that sounds very much like the second psalm. You are my Son. And you see it again at the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, very well may be an allusion to the second, second psalm. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. We really kind of see all of Christ's earthly life as a coronation. Christ is presenting Himself to the world as God's anointed one, God's King. And so in His miracles, in His teaching, in His life, in the way that He interacts with people, in His crucifixion, in His resurrection, He is being anointed. He's being uh, crowned, so to speak, as King. He's manifested to all the earth as God's King. Now look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, it's used in a slightly different way. 
Hebrews uses it, this passage to show the superiority of Christ. If you remember Hebrews chapter 1, or the book of Hebrews, it's about the superiority of Christ. That Christ is better. Christ is better than Old Testament figures and Old Testament institutions. In this particular passage, Christ is better than the angels. And so verse 5 says, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Emphasis there on my son. Does, Jesus, does, does God ever refer to the angels as his son? No. But he does Christ. You are my son, this day I begotten you. Again, shows the superiority of Christ over angels. Now chapter 5, a little bit different. There he's talking about Christ as our high priest, and he quotes this passage to show that God has appointed him to be high priest. He didn't take on the office himself. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so I have, I have installed you, I have chosen you as high priest. And so it was an important point to make that he didn't take it on himself. There's another use of this passage in the, the New Testament. John uses this psalm to show that Christ has authority over nations that oppose him and he'll judge him. That's how it's used in the book of Revelation. We're studying the book of Revelation. We're talking about how the Roman Empire, the Roman government, oppressed God's people and in, in some cases even went so far as to kill God's people. And so what John says is that Christ rules the nations with a rod of iron. And the idea is he's going to smash them, you know. He's going to obliterate them, just like take a rod of iron and you take that clay pot and you just smash it into a million pieces. And so those nations that oppose the Lord and His anointed, in the end, they're going to be brought down. Of course, that's happened many times, hasn't it? The prophets speak at length about this. Amos, the book of Amos is uh, in the first couple of chapters mentions a number of nations that have opposed God's people and of course many of them don't even exist anymore. God has brought them down. He mentions Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Egypt, other prophets address Assyria, Babylon, and, and Rome. These were all at one time, uh, the, the last few of them, Assyria, Babylon, and Rome, they were all at one time world empires but because of their relationship to God's people, they have been brought low. The kings of the earth should have learned this lesson long ago. Oppose God, oppose His people. That's a bad decision. You're going to come under God's judgment. And so what they need to do, as the psalm tells us, is acknowledge God's authority and yield to it. I want to spend the rest of the time talking about Acts chapter 4. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 4 and see how it's used in that place. Now just prior to this, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John have gone to the temple and they've healed a lame man. And uh, they have begun to preach Jesus. A crowd gathered around and of course they, they take advantage of that and, and they began to preach Christ. Jesus has been raised from the dead. In chapter 4, the story continues, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them and arrested them. And so they, they're arrested in, in Acts chapter 4 because they've been preaching Christ. Well, verse 21 says, when they threatened them further, when the leaders, the officials, 
threatened Peter and John. They let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. The man had been enabled to walk. You see that in verse 22. And then verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore and threaten them. They tell their fellow Christians all about that. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the nations rage? Or in this passage, translate Gentiles. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples, the Jewish people, devise futile things. When we think about the crucifixion of Christ, that, that resulted from a combination of efforts by Gentiles and Jews, didn't it? And so the kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered against the Lord and against His Christ. And then they explain. Truly in this city, that is in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, recalling the words of the second Psalm, against the Lord and His Christ, or against His anointed, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And so the Gentiles are conspiring against the Lord and His anointed as Christ is put to death. The Jews are plotting against the Lord and His anointed as they, you know, as they, they send Jesus to the cross. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and, and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak the word of God with boldness. And so note that last statement. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. The plots of man to thwart the purpose of, of God and His Christ are futile. The, 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 the conspiring together of Jew and Gentile to have Jesus put to death ended in failure. What a puny attempt to, to, to oppose the Lord and His anointed. What happened? He's raised from the dead. Well, that death didn't stop Him. Couldn't stop Him. He's raised from the dead, and He just continued to do His work. And what about, the, what about the people? Are the threats against Peter and John, are they effective? Do Peter and John, do they stop preaching and teaching? No, verse 31, they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Well, these puny attempts, these threats of punishment, they're, they're not going to stop the Lord and, and His people. They're going to just keep right on going. Well, this is not anything new, is it? That, that the nations are opposing the Lord and His people. That, I mean, it still continues. It's not, not anything, it's not something that was done in the past. And, and then people say, well, you know, it, that's, that's not going to work. <laughs> people are still trying it, aren't they? They're, they're trying to silence the gospel from going forward. Now, an Old Testament example in the life of David. David, who's the author of the psalm, think about his life as king. There are several who oppose David's authority during his reign, and all with futility, all in vain. Saul tried to kill David 
but David escaped and took the throne of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, challenged David for the throne. <clears throat> there was a long war between David and Ishbosheth's, uh, but uh, or Ishbosheth, but David prevailed. The nations opposed David, but were defeated in 2 Samuel chapter 8. That included Moab and Syria, Ammon and the Philistines. And maybe most well known, Absalom's own, uh, David, David's own son Absalom challenged him to the throne. David finds it necessary to abandon Jerusalem for a while, but eventually Absalom is killed. Why, why are you challenging the Lord and His anointed? Don't, don't you know that that's not going to work? <laughs> Haven't you learned that that's not going to work? And so it happened in David's day, it happens in Christ's day, and it happens in our day as well. So just think about the situation in which, in which we live. How the people of the world and the culture around us are working to silence the authority of God. Now it may not be directed at us personally, but there is a concerted effort, I don't think any of us would disagree, there is a concerted effort to neutralize and to negate the authority of God, especially as seen in His Word. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. And so, and so this is a spiritual battle that we're involved in. It's waged against us by those who would silence God's influence in the world. The Bible has been under attack for a long time. And gradually, I think, over the years, respect for it has diminished. It's, it's eroded. So that now it's openly rejected. I mean, openly disrespected. Looked at with contempt and rejected by, by many people. Let's think about that just a little bit. There's no doubt that in our culture, in the society in which we live, especially the moral values established by the Bible have, have been rejected. For a while now, anyone in public position, in entertainment, for example, or in politics, who claims to be a Christian is facing an uphill battle, at least on a, a national level. Now, in the state of Alabama, that might be a little different. But on a national level, if you're in politics on a national level, and you come out and say, I'm a Christian, and I believe the Bible, and I would try to live my life, and my thinking is informed by Scripture, and I think that's the best way to go, you're, you're, you're facing an, up, an uphill battle, to say the least. And uh, it, it's almost uh, impossible uh, these days, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's, it's, very, it's rare, it's unusual, to find a Hollywood production in which a Christian is portrayed in a positive light. Most of the time, those kinds of movies or those kinds of shows, they're produced by people that have respect for the Word of God themselves, sort of a special, uh, maybe a special production company. But most of the time, in mainstream Hollywood, uh, anybody that claimed to be a Christian would have to be very discreet about it, and uh, they'd have to kind of keep it concealed. And uh, it's been that way for a while. Let me give you an illustration of that. I like Ingrid Bergman. You may not know who Ingrid Bergman was. 
She was, she was an actress in the 1950s. She was in Casablanca, you know, she's the, she's the star in Casablanca, she and Humphrey Bogart. But she's in a couple of Alfred Hitchcock movies, Spellbound and Notorious. I like both of those movies. She's practically, not practically, run out of Hollywood because she had an affair, someone who wasn't her husband, and conceived a child. She couldn't get a role, you know. Today, that'd be a badge of honor. You'd, you'd have offers coming in right and left. That's how, that's how things have changed. And so biblical morality has been eroded. Respect for the Bible has been eroded. That's, that's the world we live in. Today in politics, a person can visit prostitutes, consort with porn actresses, send indecent text messages to women who are not his wife, be caught in an affair, and do all other kinds of things, and live to run and be elected again. You know, just kind of turn the other way. Don't look. A person can be transgender or homosexual. But if a person objects to abortion or homosexuality or same-sex marriage or makes any other statements suggesting sexual restraint, his political career is in trouble. If he were to oppose divorce and encourage mothers to stay at home and raise their children, it'd be political suicide. In 1980, it kind of shows you how old I am. In 1980, John Conley ran for president. He was former governor of Texas. He was in the car when President Kennedy was shot. He was running for president. That's when the feminist movement was getting started and, and really kind of hitting its stride. I remember uh, Governor Conley said, we, uh, he was on a panel where they were discussing that. He said, you know, I, I think there's a difference between men and women. Uh, I knew right then he, he, he didn't stand a chance. <laughs> you know, respect for the Bible, respect for God's Word, respect, respect for its moral teaching, respect for the roles that it gives to men and women, all of that has changed. And, uh, and so, you see, the nations are plotting against the Lord and His anointed a person can be a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, an atheist. He could be a Druid, for, as far as that's concerned, and be praised for his courage. Let him claim to be a Christian and promote the morality that's taught in the Bible. He'll practically be hanged in effigy. The nations certainly are in an uproar against Christ. Why? Well, they want to break free of the restraints, just like in the second psalm. Want to break free of the restraints that are, that are on them through the Scriptures, through the Word of God. They want to go their own way. They want to do their own, their own thing. They don't realize that God is and His anointed will prevail in the end. In the book of Acts chapter 17, the second psalm isn't quoted there, but it does tell us about the Lord and His anointed will have the last say. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man who He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. And so, that's a reference to Christ, isn't it? The Lord and His anointed are going to judge all people. They will have the last say. And so instead of resisting the Lord's anointed, do what the second psalm says. Acknowledge His authority. Kiss the Son. Do obeisance to the Son. Revere the Son and obey Him. Worship the Lord with fear. Do homage to the Son. 
Now, our primary interest is, is not to save the nation. It'd be nice if the nation were saved and, you know, the nation went forward and prospered and had respect for the Word of God and all. That, that'd be nice. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't resent that or, or criticize that. But, but we're honoring the Lord and respecting His authority because it is right for us to do. You remember in the second Psalm, the very last the very last statement, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so that's us as individuals, isn't it? Those who take refuge in Him will receive God's blessing. God is deserving of our devotion. We should bow to Him and His authority because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if for no other reason that, bow to Him because He's King of kings and Lord and lords. That begins with each of us individually, bow before Him, respect Him, serve Him, live by the things that He's taught us to do. The world's going to try to neutralize the Lord and His anointed and their influence in the world through the Word of God. But we have to stand strong, be strong, support that, follow Him, and find refuge in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're again thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight and to open your word and study from it. Help us, Father, to be good students of your word. Help us to see the wonderful things that are contained in your word. Help us to handle it correctly and uh, handle it in the way that you would have it to be handled. Help us, Father, to see the things that you want us to know, that you want us to learn. Father, this is a lifelong process. We're lifelong learners. And so as, as we grow older, please, Father, we ask you to, to help us to see, see these things, to see them anew, to see them afresh. And uh, we pray that they'll, that they'll grow and develop in our hearts. We're so thankful that you've given us your word. Help us to see the, the amazing story that's contained therein, the story of redemption how you have sent your Christ into the world, your anointed one, to redeem us and to save us. Help us, Father, to recognize him as our king, as our Lord, to reverence him, to fear him, and to follow him. Wherever he goes, we follow him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight,